0: Herds and Curds with Carmen and Leanne, bringing you conversations with farmhouse cheesemakers and dairy producers. The first Sunday of the month at 7am on your favourite station, 3CR. 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Welcome to Herds
1: and Curds on 3CR Radio. Our program today is an excerpt of a recording of an event that happened earlier in the year, organised by the Australian Specialist Cheesemakers Association, or ASCA. The event, titled Reinventing Farmhouse Cheese, was a conversation between cheese professionals from Australia, America and England. It featured ASCA President Carla Mers of Holy Goat, Ian Powell, an Australian microbiologist working closely with ASCA, advising on all things invisible to the naked eye, Bronwyn and Francis Percival, authors of Reinventing the Wheel, the Fight for Real Cheese, who we somehow always manage to mention on Herds and Curds. In addition to American farmhouse cheesemakers, Andy Hatch of Upland's Cheese and Matteo Keller of Jasper Hill Farm or part of the soiree. Originally thought to be a discussion about the work and research of bacteria and producing interesting cultures happening in each of the three countries, the conversation quickly shifted from the science of farmhouse cheese to legislation and how each of the three cheese associations are interacting and lobbying with government. Richard Cornish had the challenging role of moderating the discussion, a conversation far too big for one evening. Despite this challenge, punters were exposed to a great deal of food for thought and hot topics for future Herds and Curds programs. The topic tonight,
2: let's stick to topic, is... Reinventing farmhouse cheese. What is a farmhouse cheese? Who wants to go? Uh, who wants to start there, Bromley? Right, farmhouse
0: cheese. Um, I think if you if if you talk about the strict definition of farmhouse cheese as we use it in the UK, it's really it's a cheese that's made by a farmer from the milk of their own animals and a vertically integrated system. And I think as we've got more into, and I hope we'll talk more about tonight, I think. There are many things that, even in a system like that, could be blocking the expression of the uniqueness of the milk that's produced on a single farm and denying that farmhouse producer their full values. But farmhouse
3: vertically integrated cheesemaker. And I would, I would actually say the UK is an interesting test case for this because where the French have beautiful clarity in terms of legally defined categories of, 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 of cheesemaking scale and, and, and style of operation that you can have fermier, you can have farmhouse operations, you can have artisanal, so so, in, in a, perhaps you're buying in a little bit of milk from your neighbours, and then you can have cooperative, and you can have semi-industrial and industrial production. And that's legally defined, it's something everybody's aware of, people are aware of what that means. If we go back to the 1970s in the UK, the word farmhouse was owned by Dairy Crest, the National Milk Monopoly, <coughs> and it was a, a purely a marketing term, I and mean, I think I, w- I would say, as, as sort of the, the the writer who's not Richard on the panel, that the biggest thing immediately for reinventing farmhouse cheese is actually reclaiming the meaning of words. That farmhouse means farmhouse. Mm. Uh, that it actually is making cheese from the milk of your of your own animal. We've
2: got uh, guests here from States, um, uh, Matteo Keller and Andy Hatch. Andy, you're, um, you're, so we didn't get to meet before, it was quite busy. Someone actually said, as a bomb goes off tonight, the cheese industry in Australia is stuffed. So we should actually, just check your- or well, everyone's due a promotion.
1: <laughs> so you're,
2: you're in Wisconsin, and Wisconsin's one of the biggest, biggest industrial dairy uh, states in the, in the United States. Tell me what that looks like and, and what your business looks like compared to that.
4: Yeah. Um, the quick background: our, our, our state was settled in the by white people in the 1830s, and after exhausting the soil, uh, farming wheat for 30, 40 years. In the 1860s, uh, dairy farming was introduced. German, Norwegian, Swiss immigrants, and they brought with them uh, a cooperative model, wherein. Uh, Several, you know, four, eight, 10, 12 farmers uh, owned a cheese factory, hired a cheesemaker to make their cheese. Usually they gave him 14% of sales. Uh, that was kind of our bread and butter, and that uh, rose quickly into the early 20th century. And by, you know, middle of the 20th century, we had 150,000 dairy farms in our state and maybe 3,000 cheese producers. Uh, and then following World War Two that Model uh, contracted. We have about the same number of cows now. You know, fifteen thousand dairy farms, uh, and about three hundred cheese producers. Uh, So it contracted, and and like a lot of industries post World War II, uh, scaled up, industrialized. So we now have the 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 farmer-owned cooperative model still exists. Um, uh, We have large uh, multinational companies with a presence. Emi, the Swiss company, Lactalis. Uh, Saputo, Bongran, they they all own uh, Irish Dairy Board, whatever they're called. Now they all have a presence in Wisconsin. Uh, our model—we make cheese on our farm only with the milk from our own cows—was never uh, common, at least commercially, uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, there was always some house cheese, you know, made by a farm wife. But uh, we began doing. Uh, making cheese on our farm 20 years ago. We'd milk cows on our farm for about 120 years, but cheese making started 20 years ago. That was kind of at a front end of a wave in, in the States, which we're still riding today, uh, of renewed interest in these uh, you know, traditional cheese making techniques. Not exclusively farmstead, artisan, but things like uh, uh, raw milk, aging cheese with a natural rind, um, sort of uh, Exploded, it may be a little bit of a dramatic word, but uh, came onto the scene anyway about uh, 20 years ago. And um, our business and Matteo's business would uh, be seen as you know pioneers in that trend and, and emblematic. Uh, so I'll leave you with uh, this idea, which could be debated, but I think that, that kind of renaissance happened in, in the UK. T- 25, 30, 40 years ago, it, you know, it has happened in the U.S. over the last 20 years, and I've been in Australia for the last two weeks, and arguably it's happening here. And I wonder if, you know, uh, Australia is now where the United States was 20 years ago, and where the UK was 35, 40 years ago. And if you just put quickly paint us a picture of your soil,
2: your, your pasture, your herd? and um, the cheeses you do make from that. Yeah.
4: So, uh, this is the US, uh, yeah. New York, <laughs> California, Wisconsin's up here in the top. Down below us uh, was original um, prairie. We're talking like five, four or five feet of just chocolate cake soil. I mean, that is uh, where all the, the corn is grown. I, you know, 300 bushel corn ground per acre. Uh, fancy dirt, as we would say. Fancy dirt. <laughs> and then, uh, just above us was originally, um, all forest. Uh, this strip through southern Wisconsin was, uh, grassland originally. Oak savanna, Big, uh, bur oak trees every couple hundred feet and then, um, grassland. So, our cheese is called Pleasant Ridge Reserve. Our farm is up on Pleasant Ridge. Uh, steep hills and, um, <coughs> erodible thin soil. So, not fancy dirt but very good at at growing grass. And our farm, I think, really hit its stride in the mid-90s when, uh, instead of row cropping it, we started rotationally grazing it. So the entire farm is in pasture. And um, we only milk our cows uh, May through December. We only make cheese May through October while they're on pasture. We dry the whole herd off uh, in the winter. It's not a common uh, setup, uh, but for our uh, piece of ground, it works um, particularly well for the soil, and um, the real beauty of the system, of course, is the flavor of the milk that comes off um, that fresh pasture. And So what we're really doing is just trying to harvest that grass in the summer, distill it down into cheese, um, tuck it away in the ripening rooms, and then um, bring it out into the world. Andy, what's
2: your herd? What what's of breed are you running in the herd?
4: We're a little unusual in that regard too. You know, uh, we've crossed nine different breeds together over the last thirty years, in which we've had a closed herd, which means we don't, you know, buy in outside cows. So we will bring in, um, you know, frozen straws of semen. And so, you know, it sounds it's like, you know, experimenting with drugs in your youth. Like we dabbled in, you know, we dabbled in Ayrshire. We messed around with, you know, Tarentaise, Abundance, Brown Swiss, um, and some of those family lines still exist, but. Uh, it's an unusual herd, and and what we're looking for are certain physical characteristics to suit our farm. Our cows are outside <coughs> for twelve months of the year, so in the summer it could be, um, you know, thirty-two degrees, in the winter twenty below. They're outside in both of those conditions, getting up and down the steep hills. So, a certain amount of physical hardiness, athleticism, and then we're also looking for particular milk characteristics. And you know, blending genetics is never going to be a perfect science, but continually saving daughters out of our best cows We have arguably developed kind of our own breed. You know? And I think, um, to return to the point that, that Bronwyn uh, touched on, you know, taking full advantage of the value of, of being a farmstead producer. You know, how do you make, uh, what is that value? I would argue it's, it's distinctiveness, you know, making a product that tastes like your farm. And to that end, um, having a unique herd of cows It's part of that that design.
0: Herds and Curds with Carmen and Leanne, bringing you conversations with farmhouse cheesemakers and dairy producers.
2: uh, A lot of us are really more more familiar with your cheese um, at Jasper Hill uh, coming out of um, of Vermont. Um, And you're up there in the the, the leafy, colourful country uh, up. up in the northeast of the states. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing? Not so much about the manufacturing but more about the other uh, the way you're bringing farmhouse cheese and science together along with the politi- the politicians in Vermont.
5: Uh, there's a, a, a long history of travail. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest threat to our business is not a microbiological threat, it's a regulatory threat. Um, in terms of um, you know, our operating philosophy, um, and, uh, which involves, is basically creating uh, a market uh, for distinctive products uh, that are place-based. Um, the, th- the, the threat of, regulate, of regulated, like, pasteurization, uh, which would sever the link between our products and the practices that are required to produce them. Um, is something that's real in, in the U.S. Um, Vermont is a small state, about 670,000 souls. And um, as such, you know, we have one representative in the U.S. Congress and two senators. And uh, uh, because it's such a small state, we have access in a way that you wouldn't if you were in California or New York or almost anywhere else in the United States. We represent uh, uh, a very kind of public, uh, positive, uh, you know, like a, a bright light in the dairy industry where we are, uh, which is, if uh, you're not familiar with what's happening in the dairy industry in. North- yeah in the United States is, you know, kind of catastrophic. Uh, Global uh, oversupply of dairy, generally, has depressed uh, pricing uh, for uh, since about 1900, (laughs) as far as we can tell. But more uh, more recently, um, you know, there's just a a decline uh, both in the the number of farms and for the first time in uh, in memory, the number of cows in Vermont. So um, artisan cheese in Vermont is uh, something that everybody can uh, basically rally around. And um, our uh, approach has been to engage academia, to work uh, with science, to develop a working understanding of uh, our traditional practices. So that we can defend them using science, and uh, we've involved uh, politicians all along the way, uh, basically uh, cultivating relationships with staffers. Because um, for a uh, a legislator to get up and def- and and oppose uh, standards for E. coli, non-toxigenic E. coli, and is you know they, they need to understand like what they're talking about, right? And so we've spent years um, cultivating the relationship uh, with uh, you know the support structure uh, in these offices and uh, collaborating with uh, dairy scientists, microbiologists, food safety experts, in order to get uh, get these uh, people comfortable. With the idea that they can stand up um, and defend uh, traditional practices like uh, wooden shelving, uh, that they can push back on uh, you know standards for non-toxigenic E. coli, that they can speak coherently about what the real risks around listeria are, listeria are um, and uh, they can <coughs> hold our regulators accountable in Washington D.C. And so. Uh, this has been something uh, that's been uh, quite successful, we've been kind of, oh boy, uh, at the front uh, edge of um, some real uh, public conflicts in the U.S. Um, around uh, these, these, uh, uh, these issues and have basically successfully shut the FDA down uh, three, three times and, and really made them consider uh, that they need a scientific basis. That was on an implement- implementation <coughs> of a regulation. Wasn't yes. It? Yeah. Yeah. The the mechanics of it really start with education. Yep. Um, and education of whom? Education of uh, legislative staff. Okay. Okay. And uh, before a, a, po- a politician is going to stand up and take a risk on you, uh, you know they need to be uh, fully educated, right? So. Uh, you know, on the on the one hand, uh, there's a uh, there's generally some kind of uh, crisis which uh, precipitates some kind of required like political response. Yep. And uh, <clears throat> ultimately, what we've learned is that the best way of getting the FDA's attention is to go after their pocketbook.
1: You're listening to. Three C R A D O.
5: From one day to another, uh, the FDA uh, pronounced that uh, cheese would no longer be allowed to be ripened on wooden shelving, and uh, they didn't understand that Parmigiano Reggiano, uh, Comte, Gruyere. That there's uh, uh, 20 million pounds of cheese on wooden boards <coughs> in Wisconsin. That it's not just small artisan cheesemakers that are. Uh, ripening their, and so this was a, you know, there was no scientific basis. They actually, uh, the science that they did uh, cite in um, their rule uh, making, uh, they the FDA reached the opposite conclusion of the research that they, the 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 published research that they they were citing, and so there was some. Uh, it was a political move uh, aimed at, um, you know, really. St- Stamping out artisan uh, cheese production and traditional practices, and um, uh, we basically uh, we were we were at a uh, uh, American Society of Microbiology conference in Washington D.C. when this happened. It was like all the best microbi- cheese microbiologists in the world were in Washington D.C. At the, at, the, at the when they did this, and we marched down, sat down with our uh, congressmen. He penned a letter and uh, basically introduced an amendment. Uh, got uh, it was a bipartisan bill. Uh, you know, a congressman from uh, uh, Speaker of the House got on board, and you know, Andy's uh, representatives in Wisconsin and, and elsewhere got on board, and 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 that just like ended, right? So that ended. It. It's, it's an amendment to limit funding in a spending bill for. Uh, Uh, for enforcement right that just ends it all right there so uh, you have to be able to like work on it uh, from that angle in appropriations bills in the United States and the minute there's a threat of limiting spending bam it goes away
6: Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a soufflé, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support
4: 3CR.
0: Curds and Curds with Carmen and Leanne, bringing you conversations with farmhouse cheesemakers and dairy producers. And it's a really interesting point that we look at the Specialist Cheesemakers Association in the UK as the producers, you know, the the group for for farmhouse and small cheesemakers. But when you peel away the layers, what has made it an effective industry body is the fact that it's essentially a lobbying organisation. And that it, when it was founded, it was founded in response to a moral panic around food safety where people saw um, that, that, that raw milk cheese was, there was a very real risk that raw milk cheese might be banned very shortly. So this organization was founded to engage with the government and it was tacked on to. Probably the driest name for an organization in the universe, the Provisions Trade Federation, which is an industry, an industry organization that had all of the ins to all of the government, um, government bodies, and all of those relationships that we could tap into and start talking with regulators on that level, and ultimately, if you want to get things done having the access to the people who are going to be making the decisions and being able to explain your, your side clearly enough that they will get up and, and voice your side um, is, is the key to getting things done, making way for change. And, and
4: I don't know how ASCA behaves in this regard, but that, that was a major decision for the, our American Cheese Society was you know, whether or not they were going to act as a, a lobbying organization. And ultimately, they decided not to. And so, what has sort of taken shape, which has so far been effective, is a little what we call "good cop, bad cop." Do you have good cop, bad cop? Yeah. Yes. Bad cop. <laughs> yeah. Acs is is the good cop. They uh, have a cordial relationship with the FDA. They supply them information. They meet once or twice a year. It's all, everybody's all very polite. And then when the apple cart needs to be upset, then you know Mateo. <laughs> Turns into the Incredible Hulk and, and, and is, the, is the bad guy. So we have somebody you who know, unleashes bird. Yeah, we have somebody who looks reasonable, and then we, you know, have somebody who looks, looks like me. Yeah.
2: That's how it looks to in
6: Victoria. You can talk about raw milk cheese. You can talk about industrial cheese with land boring cultures in it. What we explored in a very much a toe in the water experiment three years ago now was to isolate bacteria from raw milk and deliberately culture them in quite complex cultures. We're not talking about one or two organisms in a culture, we're talking about seven or nine organisms of five, six, seven different species. Reflecting at least some substantial part of the natural flora of the raw milk. And then putting that into pasteurised milk and making cheese with it, and it wasn't really a surprise to us, but by heck it felt good when it happened. That cheese tasted a hell of a lot better. That was a very small project involving three cheesemakers, it was very low budget. It's since just come to a stop we haven't gone any further with it but it was an example of how you can do some quite targeted work that demonstrates something quite clear that opens doors I mean in the sense that you know these cheesemakers were making cheese with um, you know, *Cocuria variants and Brachybacterium, and copiae and all sorts of lovely organisms that have great names that you'll never find on any culture packet from a major culture supplier. And I suppose the part of it that threw me, I mean admittedly, this wasn't hugely promoted and the products didn't go on widespread sale with big labels on them saying, hey, look what we've got in here. But the conversations we had with the regulators, were very polite and very accepting and at least as far as we went were accepting that what we were doing was rationally thought through we were gathering evidence along the way and a conversation was beginning to happen now I think as Matteo saying that's an important thing to try and get going and hopefully to try and keep going that you have some level of careful, thought-through, well-documented, scientifically shrouded work that's going on that supports some aspects of of the more airy-fairy, I feel it in my heart, it's the way my grandfather did it. stuff. And gradually the two come together because you can use the same sort of thinking to support food safety issues and raw milk safety, whatever it is you want to look at, the same approach of doing something carefully and cleverly and just putting it down in front of people and saying, see, there wasn't much wrong with that, was there? And then you go to the next phase. And that was really as far as we got with that. But it was, I think, a very good exercise in engaging with science on a fairly small scale as this was. I mean, think what we could have done if we'd had oodles of money to throw at it, if we had the laboratories that were interested in doing the work. But I think that, that idea of having a relationship with the science, which helps you to have a relationship with the regulators, it all comes together as a coherent package
2: of how to how to manage ideas and, and how to move forward. Also maybe to try you in this in this moment just? State the uh, the position of ASCA as far as moving forward towards uh, a, a more traditional approach to making cheese using raw milk and raw milk cultures?
7: So, what we're trying to do is to build up a toolkit, a toolkit of um, different options for our cheesemakers, and cultures is a very important tool in that kit. Obviously, raw milk, and we will continue to work with the policy makers and the regulators to try and have more and more raw milk able to be made, raw milk cheese rather able to be made in this country. But we also need to, and others want to use pasteurised milk and it's been a, you know, it, it is our history, Unfortunately, some may say it's unfortunate, but it is our history that it's a lot of our cheese uh, well, certainly for a, a very long time has always been made with pasteurised milk. So uh, we need to have a toolkit that gives those who make with pasteurised milk the it, options that they just don't have with the commercial cultures that are available and that includes the sort of project that we worked on with Ian and we want to take that further and we do hope that we will be able to take that further soon but it also means we're bringing in a range of cultures for example into Australia at the moment a small French um, culture maker uh, who's who has amazing an amazing library of, of microbes and, and the cultures that they make from them and also is able to provide some technical support to our cheesemakers in changing from the commercial cultures that they've been using up to now to to be able to to use these really new and exciting cultures. And Paul, our Vice President here, has done a huge amount of work on this particular project. So we're trying to build that toolkit that the cheesemakers have access to. Some, we want to be able to make raw milk cheese. They will be primarily farmhouse cheesemakers, which is the right thing, I think.
1: Final words were from Alison Lansley, Secretary of ASCA, who has worked extensively trying to improve the quality and potential of farmhouse cheese in Australia, from a political level on a regulatory front to organising technical forums for Australian cheesemakers, we plan to have Alison on a programme as a future guest. As mentioned at the start of Herds and Curds, this morning's programme was a recording of part of an event organised by ASCA. If you would like to hear the full recording, we encourage you to contact Herds and Curds via our, our Instagram page. Uh, Thanks for tuning in to Hazen Kurt and coming up next is the gardening program.